Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. As the artificial intelligence phenomenon rolls on, the question emerges, what are the cybersecurity attack implications of AI? Now Carnegie Mellon University's Software Engineering Institute has formed a team called the Artificial Intelligence Security Incident Response Team. It's working with sponsors in the Defense and Homeland Security departments. We get more now from the director of the CERT division of the Software Engineering Institute, Greg Tuhill. Greg, good to have you back. Thanks, Tom. What's going on here? Are you talking about AI in the service of cyber protection or how people might use AI to enhance the ability to attack or both? All of the above, Tom. As we have uh, been running the CERT now for 35 years, we've kind of developed the cyber incident response discipline. And uh, arguably, Carnegie Mellon and the Software Engineering Institute are the birthplace of cybersecurity as uh, we formed the original CERT, which I have the honor of leading right now. And we've evolved from just a, a computer emergency response team to a cybersecurity engineering and resilience team. And uh, we've been receiving through our CERT coordination center uh, responsibilities, numerous reports of incidents that involve supply chain, uh, data attacks, algorithmic uh, attacks, hard and hardware and software attacks and defects. And we're seeing also cyber reconnaissance where folks are doing specific scans, looking at uh, AI systems and trying to derive information about the, the models, the architectures, the frameworks, and such. Based on the, the vulnerabilities that are being reported to us, and at this point, all of them are embargoed, where folks are sharing with us and saying, hey, we want you to help us protect the, our, our company and our you know the victims. But we're working with them uh, through our responsible disclosure program to identify means of understanding what's happening as well as working with those uh, organizations on what they should do about it. I think it's really important for our audience to remember that a lot of these things that we're seeing being reported to us at the CERT are, are mirroring everything that we've seen evolve over the last 30 plus years in the cyber realm. And uh, as we take a look at AI, AI is still doing things with software. The The models are software driven. Sure. The frameworks are the same types of uh, techniques that we're using, but at much grander scales in other places. It leads us to believe that AI vulnerabilities are cyber vulnerabilities. And the things that we are doing in the CERT coordination lends us to believe that we need to rethink how we do incident response when it's applied to a artificial intelligence or machine learning system. Right. I and guess my question is, what are the unique software or protection challenges of AI-powered systems versus regular old software applications, which are vulnerable enough as they are? The commonality is much greater than the differences. But the differences is usually scale, where you will have uh, AI systems that are uh, taking advantage of distributed processing, often in multiple cloud environments, and frequently in cloud environments that are operated by multiple vendors. The scale of the data that is ingested and the computing power is generally at uh, magnitudes of complexity 
that uh, dwarf normal IT and co commercial uh, type of systems. And, and then three is as we take a look at the different types of models, and there's many different flavors of AI, there's going to be multiple languages often involved in the system itself, making it extremely difficult to tell the difference between an attack and a defect. Further, and this is the last one, is when you have something like generative AI, where the model is learning, and as the data is changing, you can never get back to that one second, you know, instance where you had a problem. You can never really quite replicate it, which adds to the degree of difficulty. So that's why we formed this team is, is to take advantage of our experience, but also to grow the community in how to do incident response in an artificial intelligence environment. We're speaking with Greg Tuhill, director of the CERT division of the Software Engineering Institute at Carnegie Mellon University. Basically what you've said then to maybe summarize it, and you can tell me if this is a fair summary, AI vastly balloons your attack surface in effect. Absolutely, you know, as you take a look at the, the models, the frameworks, the connectivity, the computing, the amount of data, and the amount of programming languages that are generally put to play in building out an AI and, and or machine learning system. The scope and scale is such that determining whether or not you're being attacked or you have a defect becomes the acme of skill. And something that we are treating this as part of our applied research activities. And we're looking to uh, take advantage of the 35 years of CERT experience to bring the community, uh, both the constituency as well as the technical communities together to make AI as good as AI can be, safe, assured, and trustworthy. And now you have the Artificial Intelligence Security Incident Response Team. What are the initial challenges? Are there specific projects it's going to work on? And will you bring in Homeland Security and the Defense Department to collaborate on those particular challenges? We've already been working with DHS and with um, the Defense Department through our sponsors and the, the research and engineering team, but also we've briefed uh, folks, uh, you know, such as uh, General Skinner and the DISA folks uh, who run the DODEN, the Department of Defense Information Networks. And, you know, for the audience, if you have a vulnerability or you have a concern over an AI system and such, we've already set up at our website at kb.cert.org. As part of the normal vulnerability uh, management process, contact us at the CERT and uh, report what you're seeing. And uh, what we do is, is we bring together the experts, not only from here at Carnegie Mellon, but throughout our vast network of friends in academia, in the research community, and in industry. We've got uh, over 3,900 different companies that we do information sharing with. As we take a look at this approach, think of it as the AI cyber watch, you know, where we are trying to identify issues and solve them before they become problems. So the reported under the, you know, safe disclosure incidents that you have collected are some of those from federal situations and do the re collected reports of AI-related incidents from industry and government, do those form the basis of, of the particular problems the team will work on? Well, you know, as we take a look at the uh, impact that AI is having on not only national security, 
but on national prosperity. It's increasingly becoming difficult to seg segregate between the two. Uh, so uh, as we take a look at AI and the application of this technology, we're taking vulnerability reports from government, from industry, and from consumers as well. And we have that network in place to coordinate uh, across all of the national security as well as the national uh, economy systems. Sounds like you really got to operate fast here because the instances and the use cases of AI seem to roll out almost by the minute. And I would think that especially in the federal organizations or large financial institutions and places like that, they would really want to get around the cyber issue before they deploy all of this AI or will, you know, could have a disastrous catch-up situation down the line. You kind of highlighted one of the issues that's uh, something that the marketplace is confronting right now. As you take a look at the building of a lot of these AI models, we are seeing some evidence as part of our research that uh, some folks, as they're building out some of these models and frameworks, aren't necessarily taking advantage of the lessons learned from DevSecOps and some of the best practices in software engineering that have been pioneered here. And as we take a look at a lot of the reports that are coming in, uh, we're finding that some of them are self-inflicted wounds because of not necessarily applying some of those software engineering principles in a, uh, a race to get to market. As we take a look at, is this as an attack? Is it a defect? All of those things come to play as we do the forensics and the engineering work to try to find the root of problems, but also a path for a solution. And just a final sort of double question, what will be the output work product of this team? Will it be publicly available? And are you also working with NIST, which is always updating its guidelines, and they have a special AI series of publications you know, that they've been working on also? We always work with NIST. My teammates here across the SEI, regardless of our technical divisions, remain engaged with the standards bodies, not only here nationally, but our contributors in international fora. And uh, that's one of the great things about uh, being at Carnegie Mellon is uh, the, the fact that we are, in fact, engaged domestically as well as internationally in identifying best practices, working with standards bodies, and uh, trying to find uh, solutions to really tough problems. Well, we're glad you're on the job. Greg Tuhill is director of the CERT division of the Software Engineering Institute at Carnegie Mellon University. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you very much, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to The Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven 
aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is 
What do they need when they need it? And building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent, new thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead and I wanna hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus. Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. 
And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, 
find my own confidence and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.